If you have been listening carefully to these messages, know that you have already subconsciously absorbed portions of this knowledge, this being the fifth such injection into your brain meets. Welcome to another episode of Square Waves FM. Today's we'll, today we'll hopefully be talking about Japanese video games. Hopefully. Well, you never know. We have a tendency to meander. I'm your host, Bianca, and with me is my loyal minion and co-host, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> Who's a loyal minion? I don't know. When you find out, well, go ask that person. It ain't me. He's a good little minion. <laughs> Hi, people. So we got a few things to talk about in our pre-show, and of course we'll talk. We'll tell you lovely folks about horrible crap you've been playing, and eventually actually get to the uh, real topic after all the letters. Mm-hmm. One whole letter. A whole letter. That's well, a good one. Mm-hmm. So why don't you start us off? Anything interesting? Okay. Um. Uh, hi guys. Uh, one thing that I've been following a little bit with some amusement this week is uh, this Kanye West album that was just released. I don't give two shits about this guy. I don't really listen to I don't know if I've ever heard of a, a song of his. Certainly not an album. But uh, there's a big hubbub this week um, that he released a, a, an album that sold very well only on his streaming music service title, T-I-D-A-L, title. Oh, this is the gay fish guy, right? Yeah, this is the gay fish guy. He likes fish <laughs> sticks. He, um, so for those who are not familiar with Tidal, I don't know whether it's available outside of the U.S. It's a music streaming service similar to Spotify or Apple Music or Google Play Music, but it only is available in like high quality lossless audio formats, which is a good idea, I suppose. He charges $20 a month, whereas other services cost around $10 a month. Or sometimes there's family plans, which cost even less. Yeah, so, for example, Google Music, which we have a family plan on, is $15, and six of us can share this account. Yeah, that's right. Which makes it less than $3 a person. Which is awesome. I think Apple Music was the first service to do that. True, but even, yeah. And they're a big faceless corporation, and they still don't charge you that much. Yeah. Not that Google isn't a big... Faceless Corporation as well, but uh, that's uh, so that that's uh, the experiment that Kanye tried. He only is a, is I don't know if he's selling his album or just streaming his album on that service, but uh, somehow to his surprise, people who weren't interested in paying twenty dollars a month went and pirated his album because it was the only other way they knew to uh, to obtain the album. Pirating the music? I'm shocked. That's right. So Kanye says that he's going to try to sue the Pirate Bay. (laughs) I know. Artists have been doing that for, what, 15 years or something now? That hasn't done anything. I mean, the founders all went to jail and stuff, and I think they're all out now, but the site didn't even slow down over that period. I know. So I don't know what exactly he's trying to do. He's just an uneducated, odd person. As he's proven very much in his amusing tweets lately. And not that I follow his tweets really, but they've been so ridiculous that people have been retweeting and it's been newsworthy and all that kind of stuff. So he's just a moron. 
So we'll see what happens on that front anyway, but it's really a peculiar situation and just goes to show as I don't think I need to convince anyone here. If you're not releasing your, your uh, product in uh, means like if you're not, if you're not selling your product at a store people want to buy from, then don't be surprised when they obtain it by other means. Yeah, exactly. I mean, consider most, most other artists, they'll probably do at least one or two uh, conventional mediums. I mean, even if they don't release on anything else, someone who releases it on Apple is more likely to find their stuff not being pirated than someone who releases it to a very, uh, Stingy service like title. That's right. Well, he's, never he's being greedy. He just wants to. He, he doesn't want to pay the thirty percent cut to the other highly populated stores like iTunes and Google. Play oh, what's the matter? Kimmy doesn't make enough to to compensate uh, his fish stick habit. Yeah, really. <laughs> really. Uh, all right. What's next? Well, you've been re- ripping some CD-ROM, and uh, no, not ripping them in tap, but actually putting them in the uh, physical hard drive. Well, actually. Well, actually. I, I kind of did both. <laughs> so whatever, I'll just come out and say it that uh, I I have really no love at all for physical media. I love I love games, of course. I love the I love playing games, but I don't really care so much about collecting them. I just want to kind of be in possession of them. So I have boxes and boxes of old CD-ROMs. A lot of them were commercial. A lot of them were uh, burned or whatever. And uh, I was sick of them taking up space in my apartment. I've oh, yeah, sitting on a childhood. table that we never use. Exactly. I've been, I've been <laughs> yeah. Really high. <laughs> I know. We have a table that's dedicated to holding a bunch of stacks of boxes, which is a poor use of a table. Well, so, when did we ever actually dine there except for the time we had your family here once? I know. A long time ago. Half a decade ago at least, right? Yep. So it's a Just waste of a table. Whine about the food I served. That's right. So I, I've had this stuff, a lot of this stuff, for like twenty plus years. I figure if I haven't, if I haven't made any use of it in that long, then I am not going to. I, I really don't plan on regretting the decision to uh, throw rip, it in the dumpster. Yeah, I ripped a lot of them and I threw them all out. Most of them, I might have cared more if I actually had like the whole retail boxes and stuff. But when I was still young, my parents had me uh, take all the discs out of a lot of these boxes and they threw out the boxes that they, like the display boxes. And uh, I just kept all the CD-ROMs like in separately. It's a shame, but I mean, I now I just don't really care. Mm-hmm. So I had a bunch of like orphaned CD-ROMs and like CDs in uh, paper sleeves and stuff like that. I didn't really think it was worth Although keeping. we do have a few of them that are preserved with the full box and all the manuals and everything. Yeah, there was some cool stuff that we definitely didn't want to throw away. Mm-hmm. I kept Under a Killing Moon. I kept King's Quest Six. I kept... The Guild Wars boxes, which we have Guild all Wars, of, Freddy Farkas. for uh, uh, North... I have the North. I have North, right, which we got we bought digitally. That digitally. That's right. And you also have your Diablo... Uh, box uh the diablo battle chest which my dad got you for your birthday a few years ago yeah that's right i also have hellgate london uh collector's edition which is the gigantic box full of mostly foam but it's a big imposing biggest box i own i have wing commander one i have gabriel knight and all these cool boxes so the cool stuff i kept but some things that i just had a jewel case like salmon max hit the road uh, and Rebel Assault. I ripped the discs, including the, any Red Book audio, and I just tossed them. And, of course, The Sims 2, which we had every... Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we had we had retail <laughs> versions of The Sims 2, which was how many I think we counted, boxes? like, 20-plus boxes, and that's, like, and that's, a, and that's a generous underestimation. Perhaps. 20 <laughs> boxes or so, yeah, of Sims 2. So... And that's back when it was, like, we were lucky to get... What did we have? I think one of them we did on CD. Most of them were on CDs and some of them were on DVDs. So that was a, a, a hefty collection. 
So we we have that on Origin now in a downloadable format. Which we got for free because Origin, because that was cool. Yeah, time. we did. So, I mean, we couldn't sell it. We didn't really have any sentimental value about, like, Ikea stuff pack or some <laughs> shit like that. So that stuff we pitched, too. <laughs> so I put a good dent in, in the boxes that are taking up space on that table. But I did rip it. I ripped everything that was functional, which was at least 95% or so of all the CDs. Some of them, I think they might have used some copy protection. EA games especially around a certain era. Need for Speed Underground was one and uh, one of the, another Need for Speed game and an NH, two NHL games. I just could not rip, I think, because of uh, DRM that is perhaps no longer supported either by Windows 10 or by the brand of CD or DVD drive that I own. So I just figured, forget it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to bend over backwards for an NHL game. So I've got lots of data and lots of bits and stuff on my... Let's see how big my ISO drive is now. Yeah, I did a whole... I. I Whenever possible, I take my games and I rip them to ISO. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so last last time we mentioned this, we had, uh, wow, even less than we do now. Okay, I think the last less time what? you mentioned it, it was like 98 gigs. Now it's uh, 204 gigs. Yeah, I have 204 gigs of ISOs, which I have uh, backed up with a batch file that I schedule every night on an external uh, external hard drive as well. So I've got some good stuff in here and some really stupid stuff in here. Mm-hmm. What do we have? I have Flight Simulator X. I probably don't need those ISOs anymore from uh, my DVDs because I own it on Steam now. Let's see. Freelancer, Grandia 2, Grim Fandango. Yes, that's one that I threw in the garbage because I only had a jewel case for it. And you have it on Steam now, the remastered version. That's right. Microsoft Encarta 97. Oh, I love that so much. That's right. Oh, Millennium Auction. That's one that I kept in the box of because that comes with like uh, – that's like a board game that comes with like a pencil and sheets of paper yeah. you use to play it. I have No One Lives Forever 1 and 2 that, yes, I only owned on a crappy compilation uh, CD version. Um, oh, yeah, Sims Medieval. We, like, bought that and lost it somewhere in our house. Well, so I think we find it again. Yeah, I think we bought it because I got a gift certificate from your sister for my birthday the year that came out. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go buy this. Okay. Seventh Guest, even though I only own the jewel case, I kept it because I really cherish that double CD set. Mm-hmm. Um... A10 Tank Killer 2, Abe's Odyssey, Beavis and Butthead Do You, Bioforge. I don't know why I kept the ISO for that because I own it on GOG as well. A whole bunch of PC Gamer and Computer Gaming World demo discs. I got all kinds of good stuff here, I suppose. Lawnmower Man. (laughs) I'm surprised. Is that only one disc? I own Lawnmower Man, apparently. Yep. I have... uh, NASCAR by Papyrus, published by Sierra, I think. Let's see. I have Normality. I'm glad I have Normality because that's the American uh, audio version, unlike the terrible British audio version that you can only get on GOG. So I'm happy to have that. Mm-hmm. Simon Max. Simon Max. Oh, quick shareware CD that I, or DVD, whatever it is, that I uh, mentioned and I comment on uh, the Upper Memory Block podcast. Hi, Joe. Umbo. Umbo. <laughs> Let's see. Santa Max hit the row. Shivers. There's a, a Sierra game you don't hear about too much. I should play that. Ultima Underworld 1 and 2, which of course I also own on GOG, but I had a DVD of that, a CD of that. Warcraft 3 ISO. Wow. Oh, yeah. That was actually, we went to a thrift shop and we found a, I think it was a bundled DVD from, like a video DVD from a Warcraft 3 uh, collector's edition. 
We just found it as a loose CD. Like whenever you go to a thrift store, for those of you who watch um, LGR yeah, thrifts, Lazy Game Reviews thrift show, where he goes to a thrift store and he he gives you all kinds of good tips about going to a thrift store, used whatever store, and uh, finding games where they don't necessarily belong. That you can often find PC games in the board game section or in the audio. CD section. Well, the American one seemed to be better than the crap we got here. Yeah, well, we uh, we've had hits and misses. We did. I did find an amazing old DOS game that I sent to Chris a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things we found was this uh, DVD, video DVD that came with the Warcraft Three Collector's Edition, and it included some footage of like a an alpha version of World of Warcraft. And unfortunately, it's just in like DVD video resolution, which is like I forget three twenty by two forty or something like that. Very. <laughs> Yeah, it's real blocky and crappy, but it was awesome to see that. And they had like a 10 or 20 minute talk about that stuff. Oh, Streets of SimCity. I owned that. Apparently you did. We kind of, Bianca and I kind of have a ritual where whenever we go on a road trip somewhere, we love going on road trips in Ontario just for an inexpensive vacation. We try to do it every summer if we can to find a new little town or something. So we go to a thrift store and I look for electronic music and stuff like that or whatever CDs I can find. And, uh... I also invariably find a bunch of old DOS games and stuff like Microsoft Flight Simulator 95. (laughs) Yeah, you go through the book piles. And we get all filthy going through all this dusty shit. And it's fun. And a a fun time is had by all. That's right. That's just a ritual that we do just to see what the people of that that geography likes to play or like to get rid of. So that's all fun stuff. And so basically, that's a that's a, a short rundown of Brian's ISO collection. That's right. Oh, one other thing that I found in my ISO collection was a whole bunch of pirate CD compilations that I bought when I like from people in high school. So I guess these are from the days where it was either before I had a cable modem and was still using dial-up, or I had friends that were deeper into the piracy scene than I ever was, and had these awesome compilation CDs. Like one CD would have like 10 or 20 games on it and they would either be the little DOS games or they would be like uh, CD rips or DVD ripped versions that had like no music in them uh, from the CD version to make it a smaller downloadable size or something like that. So I have all these cool pirate CDs that have all these games that I don't give two craps about. Ooh, soda. (laughs) Soda. I think that was a racing game. I don't know. They're all like RARs. Let's see this NFO. Soda Off-Road Racing by Sierra. Isn't that interesting? Sorry, Sierra. I seem to have pirated a game of yours. <laughs> Requires a Pentium 100, 16 megs of RAM, and 70 megabytes of hard disk space with DirectX 5. That's awesome. So some of these are are uh, compressed with PKZip or Arge or RAR. 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 And some <laughs> of them have these awesome... Uh, menus with these super fancy batch files so it's like press one to install this game press it goes like one to zero and then like a to z uh this cd i'm looking at now has a copy of internet explorer 4 on it i'm gonna have to play with that with setup95.cab awesome wow oh well that's gotta be full of bugs and security uh, exploits Ooh, nhl 98 i've been looking for that too nhl 98 let's see it has a dot reg file for a registry key let's open this with notepad plus plus i bet this is to register it oh wow is this the one that i used to make fun of when you were playing probably <laughs> oh so this doesn't crack the game this reg file this just kind of i guess you probably don't actually install the game. This probably just does the registry entries for if you were to properly install the game. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. It's just a bunch of like binary bits and stuff like that. Neat. Neat. 
So, moving so, on from yeah. your uh, rambling about your ISO collection, what else have we got? Pardon it's, me, let's see. Ah, Space Monger, because we haven't yet talked, we haven't talked enough about your computer yet today. <laughs> well, what the hell podcast do you think this is? My podcast? <laughs> Space Monger. This is a tool that we've been using for a long time. Let me see, about 1998, really? So we've been using Space Monger for a long time. We specifically use Space Monger version 1.4 because that's the free version. They made a newer version. I think they're up to version 3 or 4 now. Although there are, so sorry, Space Monger is a tool that like visually represents the contents of your hard drive so that you can see how much free space you have and how much is consumed by by folders and then um different folders are like different size squares so the bigger the square the bigger the folder and this is a great way to just visualize what's taking up space on your hard drive mm -hmm. so if you're not good with conceptualizing numbers but you're better with a visual representation of uh, an abstract concept. I think this is a good uh, way of uh, displaying this information in a, in a tangible fashion. Yeah, well, it's just an awesome way to get an idea of what's taking up how much space. Like, it's one thing to see that one, that, like, program files is taking up, you know, 30 gigs of space. But then you have to, like, look into, eat, like, folders and subfolders and sub-subfolders to see if there's anything taking up extra space, so... Yeah, or right-clicking to see, and then getting just a big arbitrary number, which doesn't mean much to you if you don't know what's actually making all that. Yeah, exactly. So there is some free space... There's other... There's, like, a freeware tool that does something very similar, but I don't know. I've been using Spacemonger for a long time. I just used it to clear a bunch of space on my C drive. I saw that I had, like, 90 gigs of games that I don't even play just taking up room on my C drive, so I cleared all that stuff off so it's just a handy tool to see what's taking up space it's also good to see if uh you have temp folders or something like that uh consuming a bunch of space that uh doesn't add any value hmm let's see oh, i don't seem to have anything too ex extraneous on my thing let's see you have diablo 3 taking a bunch of space world of warcraft sims and a lot of stuff in your app data look at that spotify you have a ton of stuff in a Spotify folder, and you haven't had Spotify installed for a long time, unless you still have it installed. I don't think I do. Delete. Yeah, you can even do file operations and stuff from within yeah. the tool, which is nice. You can delete folders and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. hmm. Wow, you have a OneDrive folder and a SkyDrive folder? Yeah, wow. That's... So that's something worth looking at. So hover over it. Yeah, you have 4.2 gigs of stuff in your SkyDrive folder. Maybe that's... You'll, you'll have to check that out later. Oh, I know what this is. Screenshot. This is probably World of Warcraft. It probably is, but... Uh, because I did some stupid backup. Wow, SkyDrive. That's That's got to be from a while back. Since yeah, that takes me back. <laughs> yeah, before Microsoft decided to have OneDrive. Oh, yeah, because it goes with Xbox One and their other, and other stupid naming concepts. At least SkyDrive made you envision a cloud concept, like a cloud uh, storage concept. Yeah, well, SkyDrive is a great name, but in England, there was some other company called SkyDrive first. So rather than – just like in England, there was another company called Gmail before Google had their mail product. So in England, they call it Google Mail and not Gmail, strangely enough. So – Whereas Google has two names for it, either Google Mail or Gmail, Microsoft didn't want to have two names for their product, so they just renamed everybody to OneDrive instead of just England. Well, the English already are the only idiots who drive on the wrong side of the road, so why not just have them with the wrong name for their product? Yeah, I mean, really. Friggin' English. <laughs> they got it all backwards. Yep. So, oh. so we'll, we'll put a link to Spacemonger on here. I can't remember the name of it, but there's an equally good freeware application, and this one's freeware too, and it's old, but it, it remains relevant to this day. I always keep 
I think it actually, it's a tiny little program. I think it might have been written in Assembler or something like that. I just keep it on the root of my, of all my partitions. It's 200 kilobytes and, wow, d uh, date modified, 2000, October 2000. So I've been using it for, for 16 years or so. That's incredible. Yep, I have the same one. And I keep it just on my one external drive. And then when I open it, I just pick the drive I want. So you don't even need it on your other drives. You can oh. just keep it on one drive and then... And then pick from the menu what drive you want. It oh, well, for to. me, just rather than sorry to sorry to interrupt you, for rather than looking for it on whichever drive it may be on, or especially my external drive, which if you haven't used it for a while, it takes a good like ten or fifteen seconds to spin up. I just put it on the root of all my drives because it's it's right there. Just a handy thing to have there. Mm -hmm. And another one I keep on the root of all my drives is an application called LCISO Creator. Why don't I put a link to this in the show notes as well? It's a nice little application for. Uh, Making for ripping uh, disk to an ISO. Yep, this is the one. This is the software he used when he made when he decided to uh, rip all his remaining CDs to ISO. So yeah, I used to use uh, Demon Tools for that, but since I think both Windows 8 and Windows 10, if you double click an ISO file, it mounts it to a virtual disk. It means I don't need to use uh, Demon Tools anymore. And Demon Tools was a great application, but then they filled the free version with all of this shitware that you had to be careful not to install. So screw them. I don't want to jeopardize my computer with that garbage. So it's. I love that uh, that uh, Windows now natively ma uh, mounts a virtual CD drive when you double-click an ISO. It makes it so much easier for me to play with this stuff. So for example, to skip ahead slightly, one of the, just temporarily, one of the games I've been playing this week is NHL 95, which is a game I'm very nostalgic about. I'll talk about it more in detail when we talk about what we've been playing. But for that game, I just double-click the ISO in Windows, and it mounts it to uh, my E drive, which doesn't exist until I double-click the ISO. Then I go to DOSBox, and I say, mount E, E colon slash, dash T, CD-ROM. And it mounts my E drive as a virtual E drive in DOSBox with a type of CD-ROM. So it's really, really easy. I don't have to fiddle around with uh, ISO mount, and I don't have to fill it in, in DOSBox, and I don't have to fiddle around with... Uh, Demon tools. And then when I want to get rid of my virtual E drive, I just go to Windows Explorer and I right click my E drive and I say eject. And then the E drive disappears. Yeah, so that is a handy thing. It's very handy. I've said it I've said it before and I'll say it again. Windows operating systems, despite their uh, perception, get more and more power user friendly with every release. Yeah. I was I was looking for when Windows 10 was coming out. I wasn't looking forward to doing the beta because I have bad luck with betas, but I was looking forward to the official candidate release. Mm -hmm. And as soon as the candidate release came out, I upgraded. Mm -hmm. So let's see. All right, what do we got next? Ah, speaking of uh, versatility with Windows, I, uh, I actually, because we've been taking these Japanese lessons classes, I decided that uh, part of of my ability, uh, part to enhance my learning experience, I was going to uh, input all the notes that I've taken so far into uh, OneNote, which we've been, which we already keep uh, scans of our worksheets in. Oh yeah, you talk while I look up the name of that that app that I use for scanning. Okay, so one part I was about I and. Well, just to back things up a bit, before deciding to entering my notes, I uh, 
we got some words last week in class, which we only had hiragana for and romanji of. Romanji being the uh, Japanese equivalent of pinyin, which in Chinese is how you write, is when you write literally the uh, the English characters or Latin characters for a word, even if you don't know what it means. Right, transliteration, romanization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I had... So I didn't have uh, the hiragana for the characters, but I didn't have the hiragana for the input, but I ha but I could write romanji, and I was getting some uh, help from a friend of mine who uh, is uh, Japanese fluent. Japanese is a second language, and I realized that I'm trying to input these, and I'm misreading my own handwriting because I don't because I'm reading the hiragana, I'm reading the uh, translation instead of the hiragana, which I had written correctly, and so a couple of the words didn't come out right. Yeah, right. Our notes are sloppy sometimes because we're taking notes in class and it moves pretty quickly. Yep, so to, to make it easier for me to get a translation of this list of words that our teacher gave us, I uh, decided to check out a uh, website, which we'll link to at the bottom, called, uh, where is it? JapaneseLesson.com. Not Lessons, that's a different website, and it doesn't have anything to do with it. So, so JapaneseLesson.com. Lesson singular. Yes. Mm -hmm. And they had a whole thing about uh, typing, and it links to a... Uh, it, to Google, which has its own MIE, which is a type of uh, way of input, of accepting input. Oh, IME, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I forget IME. what that means. Input, let me see. Input, IME. Input method, IME. Input method editor. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yep, so there's one built in as Windows, and there's a Google one. I've been using the Google one, and Brian has uh, the, the Windows one installed. I haven't tried the, the uh Windows 10 version yet, but I quite like the uh, Google IME. So anyways, I get I got that installed, and I had to fiddle around with it a bit to figure out how to use it. Now that I've actually got it working, it's a pretty nice way of getting my notes in. The only thing is, is um, I don't have a very good way to toggle between Hiragana and Romanji. I have to... Um, to switch into English, I have to make make the first I have to hold shift and capitalize the letter in order to uh, begin typing in English. So hmm. I can't meet, I can't keep lowercase because if I have lowercase, it automatically puts in the hiragana or katakana. So that said, I got the notes. I actually got all our notes in five weeks with notes and vocabulary into the into our uh, one note our shared OneNote uh, document where we have all our uh, ja notes on Japan reserved for the future. Um, oh, so what did I, can I interject with the uh, app that we use to yes, scan of our course, stuff? Of so I've been using this Android app called Microsoft Office Lens. It's a super cool app. It's made for, it basically it turns your, your uh, phone into a scanner. So it's made for sheets of paper or for whiteboards. So what you do is you put your you put your sheet of paper, you like step away from your whiteboard so that you can get the whole thing in the frame of your uh, camera, of your phone camera. And you it um, while you're lining up the shot and it shows you the preview on your screen, it uh, draws a border around where it thinks the extremities of that document are. So it's pretty easy if you have a piece of paper that's on a, a table that's not white, then it's no problem. Um, so you snap the picture, and even if it's slightly at an angle, it does some kind of processing that makes it perfectly flat, and it sharpens uh, the the edges of all the characters so that it looks nice and smooth. It's like uncanny what a great job it does of scanning a piece of paper on an angle into an absolutely flat document. 
And so you can save that document in a variety of files, but because it's a Microsoft app, it lets us put it right into OneNote. So, and th for those who haven't used it, OneNote is a great application. It's just a note-taking application. We use it every week to record our notes for this podcast. And because we have one of our uh, notebooks shared, it means that we can do stuff like shopping lists and stuff like that. We can both uh, contribute to the same page and in almost real time, we see the other person's stuff and what they've typed. Mm -hmm. So it's a little nicer than uh, Google, uh, Google Docs for this reason, but essentially it's the same functionality. Yeah. So uh, what this means is that when I use Office Lens to take a picture of a piece of paper, it flattens it and it puts it into the OneNote uh, folder. So we can have our written notes and our scanned worksheets in the same place. So I just take a picture of all of our worksheets and our homework before I write anything on it in case we want to print another copy for later. And then when I'm doing my homework, I write on the piece of paper. But we could always either print out another one or... If we wanted to use the touch screen with the stylus or something, we can fill it out electronically mm -hmm. on a new copy. Very handy. And it's great if you're if you work in an office and you're taking you're in a meeting where people are taking notes on a whiteboard, it's perfect to just take a picture of the whiteboard and then email a copy to all the attendees in a nice flat, easy to read copy. Exactly. Yeah. It's great for diagrams and other stuff like that too, if you've written that on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually happy I got this uh, input all set up because now it means I can get my, uh, turn my sloppy handwriting into neat, tidy writing for both of us to share and benefit from when we go through and uh, review our notes from class. That's right. Although it seems like you have to use a combination of typing and autocorrect because sometimes it misinterprets what you've written or it like. Well, actually. There's like a grammatical exception or something where you don't use the same character at actually, the end of Actually, all a word. you have to do is um, type in. So, for example, all you have to do is type in the actual exception manually. So you don't have to uh, correct it. Oh, so like watashi wa, you would type watashi ha? Yes. Because that's the character that's an exception? Yes. Ah. And if I was doing, uh, and if, or if I was doing the a word where the uh, O character is actually wo, I would type in W-O. Okay. So, so that's good. So it's a good way to reinforce your own knowledge of the grammatical exceptions. Exactly. Yeah, so that's really handy. So I did that too. Instead of copy, instead of using the Google thing, I just installed another language on uh, Windows. I just installed Japanese. And so I can switch to it in my taskbar. There we are. And it puts a little, see that? It puts a little thing uh, in my taskbar. And I click it once. And it like usually it has the letter, an English letter A. But if I click it, then it shows the hiragana character for A. Ah. Does yours do that? Oh, yours gives you a menu instead. Yeah, because I have a full width and half width options. Oh, yeah. So if I left click it, it, it toggles between hiragana and romaji. But if I right click it, then it gives me a whole bunch of other options. Mm -hmm. Same for me. So, yeah, it's, it's neat. So you type, like, if you want the hiragana uh, uh, character for ha, you just type ha in English, and then it turns it into the hiragana. Very handy. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I just toggle between English and Japanese because yep, I don't want to do the Japanese stuff all the time, just if I'm doing my notes. Exactly. What also is good about this for us is now it means that if we want to look up something when we miss the uh, translation in class, we just have to enter the characters and direct me to Google, into, um, Google Translate. Right, because sometimes we're so busy writing down the characters that we don't have time to write down the meaning of the word. 
that the that our our sensei no, what's the word for teacher? Kyushi. Kyushi. Thank you. Sensei means master is when you're addressing them, but when you're talking about the profession, you use the other word. Right. Kyushi is a profession. Yeah. Sensei is the honorific. Gakusei is student. Right. So we're so we're the Gakusei, and she's the Kyushi. All right. Um. Let's see. Oh. We've also been we've been using uh, Google Maps for more than just GPS. <laughs> yeah, do you want to talk about it? Sure. So we're one of these. So we're these types of people that you see in restaurants. The obnoxious kind of people. We're the menu, The food is brought to us, and instead of immediately grabbing our fork and digging in, when we take out our cameras and we take pictures. Yeah, we love pictures of our food. We reminisce fondly about the stuff <laughs> that we ate three years ago. <laughs> Or dorks. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, we started taking pictures of our food before we had digital cameras on our phone, before our phones had digital cameras. Did we? Yeah, we had a friggin' digital, we just used the old school digital camera when we were in Amsterdam on our honeymoon. Oh, that's right. Boy, that's dorky. Yeah. <laughs> so we were doing it before it was cool. <laughs> I guess. Is it cool now? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. People seem to like it. Well, they do seem to like it, don't they? You want to bring yours up so that we can... We can uh, compare our, our braggables. Oh, sure. So when, on Google Maps, uh, in addition to writing reviews for lo- for locations like restaurants or, or movie theaters or whatever, you can also attach photographs of stuff that you did there. Mm-hmm. So because Bianca and I have all of these uh, photographs, and a lot of them are conveniently geotagged with the uh, uh, longitude and latitude, we it uh, reminds us exactly where we got it. It's not that we need to be reminded because we all, as I say, we reminisce fondly about the stuff that we've eaten. Mm-hmm. So, oh, go to the top of your list. How many? We started doing this what a month ago or something. Yeah. How many views of your food photographs do you have in a month? Forty. I since I started, forty-four thousand. Yeah, she started That's a little bit before me. Since like a couple of days ago when I when we checked this last. I know. In minutes, we get hundreds of views. I have thirty thousand views of my. Photographs of my food photographs. That's nuts. People really want to see what we ate. Yeah. So these I'm... these photographs are associated with the location. Mm-hmm. And so you um, Google Maps has this like gamification thing where you score points and go up levels and stuff for uh, contributing reviews or corrections or photographs or other things. Or to, answering questions. Yeah, to give them more metadata about. Yep. So uh, we're bo- I'm level three. He's level four. I think. Yes, I am. So at level four, I get an additional. What do I get? I get a terabyte of storage on Google Drive for two years anyway. Yeah, a terabyte. Wow. For two years. Yes. So because it's for two years, I'm not going to use that terabyte because what happens in two years? But I still have 17 gigs. I actually have 19 gigs of storage on Google. Uh, and so do you, don't you? 19 or 17? Oh, yeah. We got an additional two gigabytes recently because it was like National Security Day. And Google said if you double-check your security settings on their uh, – on, on their service, on their account service, then they'll give you a free two gigabytes forever. Woo-hoo! Free gig, uh, free terabytes, my favorite thing. Yeah. So, uh, what's your best photo? How many ratings do you have? How many views do you have on oh, it? Oh, I don't know. I think it was like 4,000 or something. What's yours while we look? My best one is 9,600. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. And yeah, it's the same restaurant where we got all these views. It was the, woo, I have 6,000 views of this. Uh, Ethiopian restaurants in Hamilton. Oh, yeah. It's the Hamilton restaurants that get most of our views, right? Yeah. Yours is from uh, the Himalayan, what's it called? Yep. Oh, the Ethiopian place surpassed it. I have 4,600 views of my uh, of my chicken tali. 
Yeah. At the Himalayan uh, restaurants, but at the Ethiopian restaurant, 6,000 views mm. of, do you remember what this was called? This platter with everything on it? I don't know. Goose plats, I mean. Yeah, goose plats. <laughs> Various vegetarian mushes with rolled up dingus bread. Boy, Ethiopian food is great. It is fantastic. If you want something different and you're willing, and but you and you're and something to share, this is a good plate. Plate that even if everything gets mixed together, you get all these fantastic flavors. Yeah, that's right. And there's no utensils. You use this bread. Injera. 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 That's right. So it's like this rolled up kind of thin pancake pita kind of a thing. So you tear off a piece of the injera, and you pinch some of it's mostly vegetarian stuff like beets and corn and spinach and beans and all these yummy things yeah and, and salads even yeah. salads you pinch it with the bread and then you eat this little tiny mini sandwich it's it's fun to eat and it's delicious great seasonings yep. and spices and i want and uh, this is the kind of place where you can't bring certain people like my in-laws so that sucks well maybe we can your dad was your dad came and he enjoyed it a lot i think my parents would like it too but they're not as adventurous as we are no my dad liked and he was a good sport hmm. So, so we're awesome. Our food is famous on the internet. <laughs> yep. And now, now that we're we done talking about food. <laughs> oh, man. Poor trolls. Hi, trolls. Hello, trolls. We love you. <laughs> we were all done talking about this, but uh, he seems to have uh, exhumed this he corpse. Seems, Mr. Playboy seems to have a bit of a chip on his shoulder. <laughs> I guess so. You got a chip in a ditch. <laughs> so, this week, it seems Mr. Playboy decided to... Uh, Record the uh, <laughs> retrace his footsteps and record the location of infamy, so we can see that it was not a quote unquote ditch. Yeah, he <laughs> <sighs> he sent us a link to a video that he posted online. I guess like directly to you and I, huh? I guess you in particular. <laughs> I apologize. I don't know what this man was. I don't know. It was ba he's basically <laughs> clarifying. That he, when he got drunk and mutilated his face, it was not in a ditch. It was on like a wooden planter thing. So thereby. So in a pile of horse manure. I guess so. <laughs> thereby preserving his honor. I don't know. So we'll put a link to this video in the show notes as per his request. Yeah, but it's still. But, <laughs> but here we are talking about it a month later and we weren't expecting to. <laughs> exactly. And it's still a ditch, even though he showed us that it's not otherwise. Yeah, that's right. It's a man-made I mean, man ditch in a box. <laughs> it's a ditch box. Yay, ditch box. Ditch box. And uh, speaking of Troll's video, <laughs> yes. he also posted both a video recently explaining why they weren't going to be doing this podcast this week. Was it for uh, oh, not, seat designers? Or yes. Whatever? Not only do they post a video about why they're not podcasting this week, they posted a podcast about why they're not podcasting this week. That was a, quite a head scratcher. Yeah, I did so, enjoy it. I listened to it. Yeah, but I. This video is full of surprises. Let's link to that too, shall we? Yep. Yeah. Now, this video kind of blew my mind. I mean, really? So you're going to record it in the bathroom? I mean, a fucking bathroom? Do you have, why? Why a fucking bathroom? You're going to at least pretend that you're not on the fucking shitter, man. Oh, and did you have to show a fucking shot of the toilet? Why? Because we wouldn't believe you? And you're afraid that we would turn into another ditch story? <laughs> I love ditches, dude. <laughs> well, he decided to drink it in the middle of that video anyway, so why not? I guess so. Well, the so toilet's, anyway. oh, the toilet's another man-made ditch. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> See what you've done yourself, trolls. This is this is what you call the Streisand effect. I'm gonna put the link to the Streisand effect on uh, on uh, Wikipedia, so that people who don't know that 
can understand why we're renaming that the Trolls Effect. Mm. Yeah. Who cares about Streisand? Trolls Effect sounds so much better. That's right. All right. Yeah, we love you, man. But, we do uh, love you. <laughs> come on. <laughs> well, we can't wait to have you back on the show. Yeah. That, that, goes, that's, that goes for a lot of our, our former guests. We haven't had guests as much as we used to this year, I suppose, but uh, we're going to. It's a very short year so far. I mean, we're only in February. You know, it's almost March, man. This this year is about a sixth over. Can you believe it? And I believe this podcast has also been over. It's also a year old. Yes, that it is. Mm-hmm. Happy happy pod day. I don't know. When did when the hell did you start this with Chris? Uh, I don't know. Once upon a ditch. <laughs> Every good story starts with a ditch. I guess so. Ooh, older entries. Yeah. Sorry, guys. We're looking at our website. I think this is the first page. January 11th. We are well beyond the one year. Mm-hmm. Hey. Yep. Hi, guys. Hi, Chris. So, let's talk about what we played this week. We played... Well, we'll start off. We played some Warcraft. What else is... Some more other Warcraft. What else is new? Yeah, well, it is new because I was unsubscribed from Warcraft for many months. Oh, many months. And... Like four we, or five, six months? Yeah, and we rolled Horde Tunes, of all things. That's right. Well, first off, I... So I played the hell out of WoW. We both played the hell out of WoW. And I'm not as big anymore on the end le- the end game content as I am just making a new character and leveling up. But I've seen all the level up areas like ad nauseum. So I needed to take a good long break before doing that again. So uh, earlier this week I started playing a little bit. And World of Warcraft, instead of giving a limited free trial, they made it so that anyone can play a character from level up to level 20 for free without any subscription at all, which is awesome. That is a ton of content just for playing one character, but you can create multiple characters and do all of the beginning areas, which is a huge, like, a huge amount of content. There's probably, like, 30 or 40 hours of content for free if you were to just to make those characters. Exactly. Very impressive. So I was having a good time playing my, my guy. I got him up to level 16 or 17 or something, so I figured, okay, what the heck. You're limited to playing your characters that are level 20 or lower for free. So I just figured, okay, whatever, it's 15 bucks. I'll subscribe for a month, as I usually do, and we'll see how much I play it. And then I'll probably unsubscribe at the end of the month, but whatever. So Bianca and I have been playing a bunch together, and we made some... Gablins. Gablin characters. They're real adorable. They kind of look like green Ferengi. They're great. <laughs> and they have these uh, awesome, dirty New York accents, so they are all uh, they have a lot of attitude. Very punk. Mm-hmm. So that's a good time. And because we were t- we wanted to challenge ourselves, we're doing dungeon content that's our level, and we're not joining groups. We're only we're we're doing it uh, as a, we're do- we're uh, not soloing. We're dual. I want to say dueling, but that somehow doesn't make sense. Duoing, I don't know. Yeah. yeah, we're we're doing this content designed for five players, but we're doing it with just two of us. Mm-hmm. So usually in the five player dungeon, you have three damage dealers. One healer and one tank who absorbs all the all the uh, damage, but uh, the two of us, Bianca's a rogue and I'm a warrior, and neither of us are really fantastic at healing ourselves. So it's a real challenge to get them down strategically and to use our crowd controls to mm-hmm. uh, to put one. En- if there's a group of three enemies, Bianca puts one of them to sleep until we've killed the other ones, like the the biggest damage dealer or the healer. Yep. So we're being and, strategic. It's really fun this way. Mm-hmm. And we try and use our uh, damage mitigation. I use evasive. I use my evasive uh, dodge when I have the, when I when I'm taking damage and 
Brian uses whatever he has. So it's kind of fun. I don't have a damage mitigation, really. I just have a heal that I can only use if I do the finishing blow on someone. Uh, victory rush. Thank you. Victory rush is what it's called. Mm -hmm. So that's fun. We'll see how far we get before we get tired of each other. <laughs> it is a lot of fun, though. Mm -hmm. All right. What else have you been playing this week? My name is Mayonnaise. My name is Mayonnaise. <laughs> This was just on sale for like 60 cents or something on Steam. What a stupid game. I'm going to put a link to this idiotic thing. It's basically an achievement machine. I have all but the last three achievements now. Oh, it's just My Name is Mayo. Oh, My Name is Mayo. My Name is Mayo. So what do you do in this game, primarily? You click and you... Uh, and what do you click? The mayonnaise jar. The mayonnaise jar. And on top of that, you can uh, you progress stories by, wearing, by having certain achievements... Uh, Selected at the same time. Story. <laughs> so there's a mayonnaise story. Yeah. Ugh. The mayonnaise has identity crisis. It has an identity crisis throughout this. Oh, is that it? Yeah. This game is really stupid. It's like a clicker game, but you tap a mayonnaise jar and it goes ding, 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 ding. <laughs> and if you get far enough, the mayonnaise lid comes off. Well, slightly. <laughs> <laughs> slightly? <laughs> what a silly game. It was. It's still forty percent off. Sixty-five cents Canadian. That's like three cents American right now. Yep, and I had. I'm money not my, buying it. I had money in my Google Wallet, so I was like, "Hey, what the heck?" If you like achievements, this is your game. You played it for half an hour, and how many <laughs> achievements have you gotten? Uh, you got like thirty or forty. Forty-seven achievements. Forty-seven. Wow. So that's pretty good achievement per. That's like more than one achievement per minute. Especially at the beginning, you kind of get like an achievement almost every every ten seconds when you first start. Yeah, well, that's very crazy. That's cute. All right, what else have you been playing? Let's see. Oh, uh, according why to why keep scrolling, you piece of shit? <laughs> um, I pretty much have not really played much of this week. Oh yeah, I played the uh, Orion science a science fiction novel. Oh, yeah. That one I started. Visual novel. Yeah, Ed, you kept making fun of. <laughs> yeah, sorry. I couldn't help it. <laughs> Looks pretty dumb. Are you enjoying it? Yeah, I'm liking it. <laughs> Except the amount you made fun of it in the less than an hour I played it would be the equivalent of how much in, in an hour I made fun of you watching Star Wars. Yeah, I know. But remember, I told you to stop making fun of it in Star Wars, and you did. And if you want me to stop making fun of it, you just have to ask. True. <laughs> but you, I did make fun of it a lot. I will not deny. Mm -hmm. Is that it? Yeah, I think that's it for me. Although we did play uh, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. What did we do in Modern Warfare 3? We did co-op missions, and uh, I and I got stuck on the ground for once instead of in the helicopter or behind the screen. Yeah, right, because I was the host. Yeah, that was fun. You want to talk about those asymmetric co-op missions? These are fun because you don't have to worry so because uh, whoever's on the ground can go at their own pace if there's no timer and they can figure out which is the best way to go. But if there is a timer, you don't have to worry about the other guy standing in the door like a derpy derp, derp wad going, duh. Well, which that's way you. To go? No. That's you. I crouch at the door and, uh, and then you stand right in front of me while I'm just about to pull the trigger and I give you a new butthole. <laughs> Excuse me, but on that mission where we were trying, to, where we had to blow up the building to disable the Russians before they got through the intelligence, I got to the helicopter first and you're meanwhile, you're standing back at the door being saying dirt a lot. Oh, well, that <laughs> sounds like something I'd do. Yes, but talk about the asymmetric ones. Okay, well, that was one of the asymmetric ones, but it was also one of the symmetric ones as well. So asymmetric means that one person 
is uh, controlling like a drone or is in a high vantage point and is, has the responsibility of picking off most of the guys while the person on the ground has to uh, find various items, for example, the uh, computers that are related that, that correspond with uh, certain security area, certain security things. I'm not sure how to describe it, but um, oh, well, I can describe that one if you like. Okay, because that's my favorite one that you're talking about. I think so. There's one mission where one person is a regular foot soldier on the ground and they do their thing as expected. The objective is to get from the beginning to the end. <laughs> that's usually the objective of all these co-op things is just to get to the end, either with an objective or holding something or whatever. It's kind of like uh, the Left for Dead major objectives. Um, so in this one particular mission, uh, the person who is not a foot soldier is uh, at these like various kind of turret things, uh, security camera turrets. So the security camera can only see like around one corner, or maybe you can switch between two of them. But uh, pretty quickly, the uh, foot soldier person will uh, run past where you can see. So that person has to, the person on foot has to uh, hack these computers or whatever. They just like hold down their use button for a while until the, the other player gets switched to a different security camera and can cover them. So there's like a huge wave of enemies that one person on foot couldn't reasonably kill by themselves. But this turret that you're in is like this Vulcan cannon, super high fire rate kind of a thing with pretty good accuracy. So the two of you work together. The person in the camera describes what's around the corner and covers the first person and has to make sure not to mow the, the other player down. Uh, so that's a really, really fun little thing where there's pressure... There's pressure points where sometimes the foot soldier is not in the view and cannot be supported by the person behind the camera. And uh, there's periods where that person has to like hold down their button and keep their hands busy so they can't defend themselves while they're trying to switch the camera to another vantage point. Mm -hmm. And there's a time limit as well. So that's pretty fun. In it, my opinion, this, the co-op stuff is the only redeeming quality of Modern Warfare 3. That game is garbage, I think. Oh, and I played through it. I don't. I don't have no problem with the content. I mean, the story's nothing special. It's kind of stupid, though. Well, it's the conclusion to like the three-part Modern Warfare trilogy, whatever. But uh, mm -hmm. it, I don't think it added a single new mechanic that wasn't in the other ones. Modern Warfare Two added new stuff that wasn't in the first Modern Warfare. Modern Warfare Three was just like a rush, uh, uh, cash grab, if you ask me. Mm -hmm. But at least the story made a lot more sense than these than the subsequent ones. I wouldn't know. Yeah, I guess so. None of, not one iota of the story of any of these Modern Warfare games or Call of Duty games stays in my brain longer than the VN screen. Yeah, the only one that, may, that I vaguely remember is the Black Ops one. Like Black Ops 1 and 2. I, oh, those are pretty disjointed too. I don't even remember. Uh, Menendez... Yeah, Menendez and Krapnov. That's all you need to remember. That's all I, I remember. And numbers, ah, numbers. numbers. Yeah. All right, my turn. Yes. All right, this week, uh, I'll skip that one. I'm gonna. I've been replaying Wolfenstein: The New Order a little bit by Machine Games. It's just a, it's a terrific shooter and it has a terrific story. It's a very well told story, I should say, with very good dialogue. Um, I'm kind of rushing through it a little bit. I just felt like playing a good shooter that I haven't played a million times. I think I've only played that one once, so why not? I'd love to get a new shooter to play, but uh, until then, I will replay this fun one. I played a little bit more American Truck Simulator. Uh, whatever, I don't need to talk too much about that. True, but didn't they uh, fix a couple of things, for example, oh, yeah. turn on red? Yeah, that's right. They um, Because American Truck Simulator is designed by... Where are they from? SCS Software. They're from Sweden or something? Probably. Let's see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Do, 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 do. I'll see if I can find out where they're from. Uh, why don't you go back and look at the... There you go. That's I'll great. just look them up on Wikipedia. Czech. From Prague. Czech Republic. Alright, so yeah, so they don't have the intimate familiarity with the rules of the road that they did during Euro Truck Simulator. So, there's different laws in America when you're driving. For instance, you can stop at a red light and then turn right on the red light in, I think, in all of America and in most of Canada. Oh, yeah, uh, Joe Mastriani to, uh, clarified for me that you can do that in Montreal now, but you can't do it in the rest of Quebec. You have to stay But what stopped. about Quebec City, where they still have, uh, I know that they still have four-way crossing and diagonal crossing. At least, do they, do they still, I wonder if they still have the four-way diagonal crossing. Oh, I don't know. We have one of those in Toronto, too, at least one. I yeah. think just the one. I don't know. That's it's a four-way like stop. Right. But if that, I think if that's the case, then you have to actually, then you can't turn on red. Right. They have this in Tokyo too, I hear. Mm -hmm. um, oh, well, so they do, yeah, so they improved that and uh, they made it a little more lax uh, in terms of, uh, if uh, sometimes the speed limit will change dramatically and it's a good way to get a, a speeding ticket if the speed limit goes from 55 miles an hour to 30 suddenly. So they give you a little more, a little bit more leeway with that now, and I forget something else. Yeah, they keep making that game incrementally better with every patch, just yeah. like they did with Euro Truck Simulator. So mm -hmm. that's a great developer. I have a, good, a lot of respect for them. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait for uh, Arizona to come out. Yeah, well, I I feel like I've already seen all the sites. Basically, I haven't explored all the roads, but mm -hmm. I, I feel like there aren't enough locations to go to. So I have I played yet. it way less this week than I have in previous weeks. I know that's why it'll be nice for uh, Arizona to be in. It'll be very nice. Um, okay, so two more. Um, NHL 95 I mentioned before, which is a CD-ROM game that I played like crazy as a kid. When I bought NHL 95, I bought it bundled with two Gravix, Gravis gamepads, which were Gravits. They were uh, four-button uh, gamepads, but if you wanted to play with two players, uh, it required a Y-splitter cable, and you can only have two buttons per player. But with one player, you could have four buttons. So those were fantastic uh, joysticks. They were kind of. They looked a lot like the Super Nintendo joystick without the L and R buttons. Mm -hmm. they were and super that joystick would always inevitably break. Yeah, that's right. You could screw a joystick into the middle of the digital thumb pad, but it would always break, and you could no longer screw it in. But that joystick sucked anyway, so I didn't miss it. Mm -hmm. I'm having a lot of fun with NHL '95. It's terrific, and even though it's a 2D game with sprites, the animation is really quite good, and the action is quite good. I'm having tons of fun with it. Although. It's not as fantastic as uh, this other one you've been playing, which is my uh, which is my favorite NES game. Oh yeah, which is Blades of Steel. Yeah, my I, favorite NES game. I just played around with that today, just because we were thinking about our topic, Japanese games, and this is a game by Konami, so it's a ja it's a hockey game made in Japan. <laughs> I don't know if there's a lot of hockey players in Japan. Well, they have winter, so I mean it. They do, but. I think people of their small frame are are better suited to being a puck than a player. <laughs> I think True, if you, but you check the Japanese, the average Japanese person, and they're going to fly into the nearest soccer field or something. <laughs> but I don't think they play a lot of hockey in Japan. For all I know, they're more baseball people there. True. So, um, but that, that's a really well-made game. I, I love Blades of Steel. It's a lot of fun, and it's one of the rare early NES games that has some speech. Flip the pass. Flip the pass. Peace and love. That's a fun game. Highly recommend it. Very highly recommended, but the AI is a little a little wonky, so you don't always, so, you, so it's so, you, so it's not always predictable. So you wind up with these heavily one sided games sometimes. In terms well, of I was playing on the, 
I was playing on the easiest difficulty. I'm sure if I played on a harder difficulty, it would have oh, been Oh, I thought you. I thought there was only one difficulty setting. No, there's three. Hmm. So that's kind of handy. That game is super fun playing two-player head-to-head, though. Mm-hmm. I forget if it let you play co-op. I kind of don't think so. Nope, but I played head-to-head. Mm-hmm. And NHL 95 lets you play either co-op or head-to-head, which I love. Mm-hmm. I think it also supported four joysticks, which is awesome. Maybe I'm, maybe that was a later one that I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Oh, so this well. wouldn't be the one with 10 gay, would it? Yes, <laughs> that it was. Um, uh, so now we... Let's go to the topic. Wow, already? Yeah. Okay, so uh, on topic, we have a tw- we have one tweet from Joe... Hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. What's our topic, just as a reminder? Japanese games. And these are... Fr- and I'm thinking... I don't know. What was it? Like, game made in Japan, I'm guessing. <laughs> I don't know. We didn't really define that, did we? No, we yeah, didn't. I, we, I, I picked all games made in Japan. I, I think I did. I don't know, but whatever. All right, you want to read the tweet okay, from Joe? Okay, so Joe writes, Wasn't big into them, but in my last show, I found out Sim Tower began life in Japan as The Tower by Yut Saito. I guess it's Yot. Yot. Yot Saito. Yot. Yeah, uh, Joe just put out a new Upper Memory Block show about Umbo. Sim Sim Tower. Umbo. <laughs> Sim Tower, which is uh, the tower in Japan until it was like oh, a minute. Mer- the tower is supposed to be the tower. <laughs> Thanks for that little value add and nudge. Um, oh, you're very welcome, <laughs> Sludge Factory. <laughs> oh, I hate you so much, woman. Good. I'm so glad. that was a Japanese game made by an engineer. I'm not going to give away the whole thing. Go listen to Upper Memory Block podcast if you're not already. I will put a link to that show, as a matter of fact, I'm in our show notes. Uh, Sim Tower. I enjoyed that show a lot. It was well-researched, as always, and lots of interesting stuff about Japan and stuff in there, too. Um, yeah, so that, that was a Japanese game. It was a simulation game. Which I don't think I had any other simulation games on my list of Japanese games, so that's pretty cool. Yep. Uh, do we have any uh, voicemails from uh, Mis- from Mister Charles that not a ditch playmart? <laughs> no, we just have his ditch of the week uh, voicemail <laughs> that I'll put at the beginning of the show. Thanks for reminding me. I got to save that. <laughs> the ditch of the week. <laughs> All right, we do have. Pardon me, just sticking that on my desktop. We do have a. Nice letter written to us from uh, Robert Menez. Do you Hi, want... Robert. Hi, Rob. Do you want to read it or should I? Uh, you can read it this week. Okay, I'll read the letter. Lots of good stuff in this letter. He says, Hi, Squares. <laughs> Let's get all weird nerdy and talk about Japanese games then. I can roll with that. My first dabbling in importing games came during the 32-bit era of gaming, specifically when I had the first Sony PlayStation. My model was the old 1001 model that had the cheap CD drive that had the cheap CD drive from uh, and was, from what I remember, super easy to mod. Anyway, around 1996 to 97, my family started to visit a Japanese shopping center in New Jersey called Mitsua which had a plethora of stores that sold all kinds of imported goods. One store in particular sold Japanese video games and also offered console modding services. One game that caught my eye was Mega Man Battle and Chase. Uh, Oh, and Chase, a kart racing game starring Mega Man and several other characters from the series. That's stupid. As the game was canceled for a stateside release at the time, and the Japanese version was rather inexpensive at this store, $30 US 
at the time. Wow, that is cheap. Mm. I convinced my siblings to give up the PlayStation for a week to bring it in for modding, and they agreed. We brought it in and came back a week later, elated that we had just opened a new door in our gaming ways. From there, several of our future consoles got the import treatment. I had my Sega Saturn modded with a dip switch to change the region settings, and frequented several game shops in New York's Chinatown, grabbing several Japanese Saturn, Saturn games. They were much cheaper for the most part than some of their American counterparts, and I also got several Japanese exclusives. And building my Japanese PS1 library. When I got my Dreamcast, I had, I had it modded straight away. On the cast, I went for several fighting games that didn't cross the pond, the biggest being Capcom vs. SNK2. What was SNK? SNK, that was a, a, another company like Capcom mm. um, that made a lot of... They made uh, baseball... S- Stars. They made games for Neo Geo. They made a lot of fighting games. Mm-hmm. So Capcom versus SNK was a series of fighting games that had like Street Fighter characters. I know what the series was. I just didn't oh, okay. know what the acronym stood for because oh. I saw it uh, around campus in 03. You know. Oh, so yeah, they were a video game making company. What does SNK stand for? Hmm, let's see. Oh. The shit. <laughs> that doesn't even. That's not even SNK. Oh, SNK. Shin Nihon Kikaku, translated as the New Japan Project. The name was shortened to oh. SNK Corporation in 1986. Oh, neat. Uh, we digress. Yeah. Where we leave off. We left mm-hmm. off as another anecdote. Thank you. Another anecdote comes from when Pokemon Gold and Silver were released in Japan in late 1999, but didn't cross over to the U.S. till about mid-2000. My brother and sister received some Christmas money from relatives, and at that time they had been pretty bitten, bitten pretty hard by the Pokemon bug. Since the Japanese versions were out by that point, and we were all learning Japanese, they gave me their money and asked me to get them each a copy of the game. I went into the city, found the games at an import store that I used to free that I used to frequent, and picked them up for them. One gold, one silver. When the U.S. versions came out, of course they picked them up and took the reverse versions from their Japanese copies. My brother had the Japanese gold and took U.S. silver. My sister had Japanese silver and took U.S. gold. I petered out a bit with imports when stores in New York City had gotten busted under claims from the major game companies that mod chips were responsible for piracy. My go-to store, JNL Imports in Chinatown, ceased offering hardware mods, making it all the more difficult to have such services done on future consoles. My only other modern console that was modded was a Nintendo GameCube that had a region-changing dip switch built into it by JNL and sold as a bundle with one U.S. and one Japanese game. This became a Christmas gift for my younger brother. As a retro game enthusiast, I do own both a Super Adapter for my SNES to let me play Super Famicom games, and I have a Mega Key and Game Genie for my Genesis to play imported games. I also have two Famicoms, a Famicom disk system, and a decent-sized library of games for them, all real carts. Anyway, that just about does it for this tale. I'll still be collecting games wherever I can, and maybe one day rebuild my libraries. I'll shut up now because I'm sure our friends also wrote in, and I want to hear their stories too. Peace out. Beep. Beep. Thanks, Thanks Robert. Robert. That was great. We just watched um, uh, Game Center CX about a... Game Center CX. <laughs> about a Famicom disk system game. Do you remember yeah. which game it was? Oh, um, Doki Doki Panic. That's right, Doki Doki Panic, which was Super Mario Brothers 2 
in uh, North America. And the, it was neat seeing that game with different characters and with loading screens. That was very interesting. Uh, there are loadings. Oh, not the please wait. What the Sorry. fuck did you just do? Sorry, you just had some schmutz on your face. <laughs> you kept holding that schmutz on my face instead of giving me the fucking mum Whatever, you're fucking schmutz monster, dick face. <sighs> so, yeah. So there were, there were no loading screens pretty much on any cartridge game. That was a huge benefit of cartridge games. Mm-hmm. And that's what made uh, PlayStation so undesirable for me. Because uh, Nintendo 64 was its competitor, and it was another cartridge-based game that basically had no uh, Nintendo 64? I thought it was... Oh, yeah, that's right, cartridge. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, this didn't come into the GameCube, right? Yeah, that's right. The PlayStation is the result of the falling out between Nintendo and Sony that we're going to put out a CD-based mm. game. There's like a, an expansion port on the bottom of the Super Nintendo where they were going to plug in the CD-ROM drive that never came to pass uh what else does he mention oh he mentioned um modding the playstation one maybe he says he has the old 1001 model that had the cheap cd drive maybe this was the version that my friend had so my friend had a bunch of pirated games for the for the playstation but instead of modding the console she had a boot disc so it was like a burned cd so you put in the boot disc then when you open the CD tray, so you put in the boot disk and then you take it out and then you put in the game that you want to play. Um, what you had to do was you had to open, you, you boot on the boot disk, then you open up the CD drive while the PlayStation is still turned on, but you had to hold something down with your fingers so that it didn't reset, so that it didn't realize that the disk drive was open. And then you put in your game and then you close the CD-ROM drive all while holding down that button thing. And then it would allow you to boot uh, pirated games. Hmm. So I'm sure the modded versions made it even easier. You didn't have to fiddle with the yeah. boot disc and all that. But that was a really funny little hack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when it was like everyone. I remember like not modded game systems, but my friends talking about just trying to import them because they wanted the they wanted the system, but they they weren't going to be released for years here. Yeah, that's right. And a lot of games didn't even come out here. At least we can play those uh, on emulators now. Mm-hmm. So, how about we get to our actual games? Okay, let's do that. At the top of our list, because we can, for the PS2, we have our two favorite games, Katamari Damashi, and uh, we love Katamari. Yeah, this is the, these are the games we bought the whole system for. Mm-hmm. Oh, these games were so trippy. Yes, they Even were so, trippy. they're trippy. <laughs> and I guess you would call them very Japanese. Oh, they're so insane. They make absolutely no sense. Your dad goes on a drunken binge, knocks all the stars out of the sky, and it makes you, the child, responsible for uh, for restoring the cosmos while he sits on his big, fat, kingy ass. That's right. It's basically a game about child labor, isn't it? Exactly. And then he berates you for not doing it good enough. Yeah, even when you do it great. Mm-hmm. He, like, never compliments you. But then they, ter- they have that awesome story, which kind of reinforces the fact that he had a hard upbringing by, like, a dad that didn't care for him. And he kind of grows up into this terrible, uncaring dad as well. Mm-hmm. The story is awesome now that I think about it. Yeah, and it's and it's told completely worth told wordlessly. Yeah, that's right, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And it's just all these beautiful drawings and animations, like not really animation, but like kind of animation, it's like like still shot animation. Yeah, it's like storyboard sort of mm-hmm. style. As for uh, Katamari Damashi, but then we love Katamari is this is like a fancy is like a sequel prompted by fans and they have like uh yeah, fan ba- and admissions that were like written in by fans mm-hmm. 
I guess so. That's how it's written anyway. I don't know if that was actually the case, but it's really True. funny. Funny framing device. Yeah, it was a great framing device. So we adore that game. That game is about pushing around a humongous ball into everyday objects like toasters and cats and people and buildings and airplanes and stuff like that. And islands. And islands, that's right. And stars right. and, and planets. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> Basically, you start off with a little ball and you roll it over little things and your ball is sticky and your ball gets bigger the more things that stick to it. But you can't pick up something that's bigger than your ball. So you just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. So you start off by rolling up push uh, thumbtacks and uh, mahjong pieces. Yeah, that's right. Paper clips and stuff, mm -hmm. and you end up rolling up multiple planets in the in the universe. It's yeah. very cool. The only only thing is, if you're not careful, you can get a very uneven ball, which makes uh, picking up stuff a little more tr a little trickier, especially when you roll up rulers. That's right. Yeah, sometimes you get lumpy. <laughs> this game is, however, a co-op game, which is kind of, but it's kind of an awkward co-op game because you got two people playing on separate controllers, trying to go in different directions, unless you actively communicate which direction you want to go in. Yeah, that's right. You have two people controlling one character with two different game with two no, game pads. Two characters controlling one ball with two different game pads. Yeah, oh, is that it? Yeah. It's very annoying. <laughs> oh, I know. I hate playing with you. I don't mind playing, you know, alternate alternate alternating turns, but Sure. Trying to push the ball together is a is a real headache. Well, we play a lot of co-op games together, but we spent a lot more time alternating than playing, trying to collaborate in that game because it was just frustrating. Mm -hmm. But boy, is that a great game. It's a great game. Really fantastic. So one cool thing about that game is you can read a description of every... Like every time you pick up an item, it kind of goes into this database. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the database... There's hundreds of items in the database. When you look at the database, it gives a little, like, one-sentence or two-sentence description of that item. But which, because, is, hmm? which is amazing because there's so many everyday items that you pick up. That's right. And some of them are, like, perfectly normal items that you're familiar with here in North America and Europe. But then some of them are like, what the hell did I just pick up? Oh, yeah. Now I know what a Daruma is. <laughs> it's like one of those, like, Matryoshka doll-looking things. That's weird. I don't even know what it is, what it's supposed to be. So what's extra weird is that... Uh, the king and the prince, they are like beings that live in outer space. So they're not familiar with all of these little things on Earth. So they kind of take their best guess in the description. So all the descriptions are from people, they're by people that have never seen this thing before. It's Which is really, really funny. However, I'm following a Twitter account that uh, is nothing but posting those descriptions. And it kind of got tiresome after a while. Mm -hmm. So I guess maybe it's better in context than... Reading them one after the other. Yeah. Uh, let's see that music out of context never gets old. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I think the music is why I bought the game in the first place. I oh, have the soundtrack before the game. Oh, that music is so good. And it's so just out there. It's very diverse soundtrack. But mm -hmm. all these yeah, all these different styles. There's, like, vocal jazz uh, with, like, Tom Jones-style crooner singers. Mm -hmm. There's, like, Japanese rap. There's J-pop and, like, uh, just nice, pleasant singing. There's, like, electronic house and down-tempo and breakcore and all of this kind of stuff. It's all over the place. It's very, very amusing. It's really yeah. well done. What and fantastic the, uh, soundtrack. Yeah, and each song is suited to the level it's in. Yeah, it is. It's just kind of nice. One of the best soundtracks ever. <laughs> I think my favorite song in that is, I don't, I don't know what it's called, but it's in uh, We Love Katamari, and it's a medley of all the songs that were in in the first Katamari game, except instead of instruments, it's like animals. Oh, Savannah. Uh, Savannah. Is that what it's called? I think Savannah something. 
That's so funny. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's all catchy. It's so catchy. It's so catchy. Terrific soundtrack. I guess we should make that our uh, sound. Oh yeah, if you please, let's do that. That's a good call. Okay. We'll we'll put that song at the end. Yep. Uh, Scorching Savannah. Scorching Savannah. Very good game. All right. What do we got next? Um, Yakuten Saiben and Yakuten Kenji. Also known as Ace Attorney. An ace prosecutor. The first one, Jacqueline Saiben, is a uh, ace attorney. Phoenix Wright uh, has three uh, has three games in the series that I played. Uh, then there's Apollo Justice, and then there is uh, Dueling Destinies is the next one, which we've never played. Mm. And then there's the Miles Edgeworth one. Yeah, that's Jacqueline Kenji, ace attorney prosecutor. Oh, right. Right. So, so the first games are about a defense lawyer and the other ones are about a, a prosecuting lawyer. Uh-huh. Without giving away too much. <laughs> right. So, so those are visual novels, essentially. Visual novels with, like, aspects of, like, adventure games. Because you have to find all the information. You have to look and find these puzzles and piece them together. Yeah. it does. The, the story doesn't progress until you perform the actions necessary. Mm-hmm. To make the story go on. And it's usually a puzzle or giving an object to a person or combining two objects or something like that. Yep. It's very adventure gamey. It's It really uh, straddles the line between adventure game and visual novel. It's very wordy, though. But the writing is incredible. The The uh, localization to English is phenomenal. Or to, to North American English, I should say. Mm-hmm. With all the colloquialisms and stuff like that. Yeah. It's just endlessly entertaining. The characters are great. The writing is great. It's genuinely funny. And it's got a good, and it also has a great soundtrack. Amazing soundtrack. All of them have phenomenally good soundtracks. Although I like, I like the uh, Nintendo DS ones better than the other ones that we've heard, and I like the Ace Attorney. I like the Defense Lawyer ones better than the Prosecuting Lawyer ones. Mm-hmm. But they're very catchy and very very good. It's a, it, the DS has a great sound chip. Yeah, yeah. The only thing about this game that I have to say is it goes from being. Uh, it goes very quickly goes into the uh, bizarre world of spirit of uh, spirit mediums without much warning. Yeah, that's right. It does some like fantasy, sci-fi, magic kind of stuff pretty pretty early on, and that's usually enough to piss me off and to drop it immediately. But it's I'm not going to call it grounded, but at least you the vast majority of the tasks that you do are based on logic, or well, and if not real world logic, then the logic that they, that they establish. There's not some, there's not some like Star Trek. Oh, the, we have this un- insurmountable goal. Oh, let's just dingus the frambulator. <laughs> oh no, it works. Yeah, although logic is more used in the yes in the in the Ace Prosecutor games, since that's his primary power is logic. Well, they call it logic in that one, but it's still pretty logical for the most part. True. Although there is in that game, there you'll invariably get stuck on something, and sometimes there's this. Like, you you have to pick something from a list, or you have to use this on that, and you wouldn't really have guessed it. Mm-hmm. So it's the kind of game that you'll probably need to walk through for here or there. But boy, I love those games. They're very good games. Very good games. Excellent characters. Cute writing. And it does have replay value, because you can't necessarily remember all the stupid uh, pieces of evidence and what you've done what. Mm-hmm. You'll remember the story, and you'll be like, hmm, what did I have to do again? So these, these games are made by Capcom, but what would you say makes these... A Japanese game. Why is it on your list? Because it's made in Japan. Okay, then. <laughs> I think the setting is all in Japan as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and it's... If, if it's, not... Yeah. Uh, it's also in, like, surrounding areas of, like, fictitious countries. 
yeah, like primarily Japanese setting and like future court and like what Japanese court could look like in the future. And it's like an adversarial system that's meant to streamline uh, criminals to get verdicts. Yeah, that's right. It kind of ma- it makes reference to the Japanese legal system and uh, its different uh, permutations and uh, uh, the modifications that are coming in, the reforms. They uh, also, the characters, I think, a lot of the time, kind of call upon these, like, Japanese literary archetypes. Like, there's, a, there's like, the bumbling detective, and there's, like, the, the, the emotionless prosecutor who is more complex than his facade uh, entails. Mm-hmm. There's, like, wacky people, and there's the, the plucky sidekick who loves to eat too much. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of the the, the archetypes that you would see yeah, in anime or something. Mm-hmm. Those tropes really come into play. But they don't overplay it, which is good. And there's not a lot. And they don't really overplay the uh, the tropes with the expressions. Yeah, it's not too cartoony mm-hmm. in its presentation. Mm-hmm. A little bit, but not too much. And some characters are comic relief, and they are a little more cartoony in their visual style. Mm-hmm. But it does feel like a very Japanese game. Yeah, because for uh, mainly for how the for how expressions are done, which are unconventional, which are not typical, typically expected for North Americans when we're watching looking at something like that. Mm-hmm. It's more it's more in the Japanese style, so mm-hmm. I would say that's a pretty a pretty good reason why. That's right. Some things don't get translated too. Some some art has Japanese characters that they just keep there. True, but those are like very minor pieces that are, it's not worth to uh, alter the sprite. Mm-hmm. But they do translate the uh, exclamations of objection, hold it, take that, and overruled. That's right. They also, uh, they also the names for all the characters are kind of punny. Yeah, and localized. They're like uh, James Bond villain kind of names. Like, what are some names? There's April May. Red Blue. Uh-huh. Um, Walkie Kataki. <laughs> <laughs> That's a cute one. Um, 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 there's there's some really clever ac- ones. Acro and Bat. Oh, yeah, I guess what they do. <laughs> um, Mo the Clown. Oh, what's his... I don't remember what his whole name is. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. It's it's failing me Oh, right I now. know where to go. You, you what's want the website? Records. Court Records. The Court Records. Thank you. Ah, uh, here you go. Just some of the names are really, uh, they're like obvious, but they're punny and, and amusing. Characters. And they, I think there are also puns in Japanese, a lot of them, but they localize it for at least English, French, and Japanese, and Chinese, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. Let's see. What's it? Larry Butts is another one. <laughs> Larry Butts. <laughs> Who else we got? Let's see. We need one, we got to drive it home with one good name here. Go back one. What was her name? Any mini. Any mini. And her sister is Mimi Mini. Mimi Mini. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a lot of heart. <laughs> oh, yeah, a lot of heart. That's cute. Um, Let's else? do one more. Oh, that guy's gross. Who is he? Sal Manella. <laughs> so there you go. That's the sort of punny writing that you run into. Oh, and of course the uh, the the loser cop is Dick Gumshoe. <laughs> So there you go. That's yeah. the kind of that's the kind of direction they go. We cannot sufficiently recommend those games. We've named how many birds after that? <laughs> uh, four, five. Yeah. Although, oh yeah, the other 
Now, I have actually the French version of the detective name. So, in English, he's Dick Gumshoe. But in French, he's Dick Detective. <laughs> That's a great porn oh, name. Uh, it's so bad. That's right. All right. Let's move on, shall we? Oh, Mo the Clown. Let's see. What was his Oh, does he have a full name? Lawrence Curls. <laughs> oh, Mo, and his name is Lawrence Curls. Yeah. After the Three Stooges. That's cute. Yeah. Okay. All right. What do we talk about next? How about we pick... Oh, because I haven't talked about this game enough. Amnesia Memories. <laughs> that name. That I, name. <laughs> I'm only mentioning it as a Japanese game. Not because... I don't believe... I don't know where it's made, but it's got the dialogue. Like, the spoken dialogue is in Japanese, and the style of the characters is an anime style. Look pretty Japanese to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, for those of you who don't remember me talking about this... And for those of you who do, well, tough shit. Good. It's a visual novel with uh, four base stories that you can choose from at the beginning. And they all have the same, and they all have, you know, their good, neutral, and bad endings. And then there's a fifth storyline that you can get into once you've done the four base stories. And Keep these, Well, that's all I really need to say about it, because I've talked about it in the past. Oh. Okay, I just wanted to see how long you played this. Because you, you have a lot of time played in this game. It just... Is full of content, which is incredible. Yeah. Good luck. Games. 599 games. <laughs> Amnesia Memories. 12 hours on record. That's a lot of reading. Yeah, and I'm not even and I haven't even started the fourth story yet. Wow. Which and I have and I've only done one playthrough, which means I've only gotten one ending on the first three. That's amazing. Yep. So I picked that just for the uh, just for the mainly the art design and the language. But yeah, character design once again fits into the uh, into the trope of uh, effeminate males, primarily designed to be visual eye candy for the uh, female audience. Mm -hmm. All right, what else we got? Why don't we look at your shade list? Let's start with uh, ooh, Animal Crossing. You have Animal Crossing. So I kind of wanted to. I've talked a lot about Animal Crossing on this podcast, so I won't go too much into it. I think most people will be familiar with it. It's like a slice of life neighborhood simulation game. I don't even know what you call that kind of a game. Kind of like an open world, open Real community. Time. Real time community. Um, I kind of lumped together Animal Crossing, Super Mario, and Legend of Zelda. Uh, can you can you guess why I would lump those games together? Um, they were all uh, Nintendo games? They are all Nintendo games, but beyond that, I think they have a philosophy that they share. Can you guess what that what I'm thinking of? No. No? Okay. So what I'm thinking of, this is influenced by something I heard about, um, about, oh gosh, why can't I think of his name now? Who's the lead designer of Mario and Zelda? Uh, let's see. Oh my gosh, I'm embarrassing myself for now. Yes, you are. See, design, uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, thank yeah. you. Fuck, that's very embarrassing. So I read about his philosophy for creating The Legend of Zelda. And what he said was... Development philosophy. <sighs> <laughs> well, maybe you can say here. <laughs> meh, 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 meh. Okay, whatever, this is taking too long. What, what, what I read about his philosophy was that he got the idea for this sort of a game by reflecting on his childhood and remembering building sandcastles and playing in the garden and exploring forests and stuff like that. It was all about connecting with nature and understanding 
how small a part you play in the universe based on like the glory and the ancient history of plants and trees and animals all around you. Mm -hmm. So those games are all very respectful about kind of knowing your place in a society. And yes, they're in a way about honing the world and conquering the world, but it's also about being powerless against some obstacles and just having to accept that and having to subsist. So I, I appreciate that a lot. That's really as much as I wanted to say about those games, but that does seem like a very Japanese philosophy to me, kind of your oneness with nature and your respect for elders and establishment and stuff like that, knowing your place, mm -hmm. but succeeding. Uh, he said, according to Wikipedia, he, uh, Miyamoto wants players to experience Kyoken. He wants the quote unquote players to feel about the game, what the developers felt themselves. Oh, neat. And so basically Kyoken is a Japanese word that means feel one, a concept forwarded by, uh, uh, Masao Kawai as a means of studying primates in the field. So basically, uh, feel like the feeling of uh, one with the. Uh, hmm. Oh, here. In Kawai's own words, by positively entering the group, he's talking about studying primates, by making contact on some level, objectivity can be established. It is on this basis that the experimental method can be introduced into natural behavior study, which makes scientific analysis possible. Okay, that doesn't mean fucking shit about crap, does it? No. But the but yeah, I think you said it. Feeling one, it's it's An about empathetic form of empathy. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, which is interesting, and it's and according to the, his development uh, philosophy, it's also he doesn't he doesn't want to have have a lot of movie like games. It's more about the experience of playing. So mm. clearly, the Call of Duty series runs contrary to his development uh, philosophy. Well, and so do the later Zelda games, I would say. That's interesting. Yeah. And what's interesting is that the only really pre-rendered scene in Animal Crossing, for the most part, is the one coming to town when you first come in. Yeah, yeah. Most of it is not really cutscene-y. Most of it is interactive. Or at least it's like you have control immediately before and immediately after. It doesn't. It's not like you watch a cutscene and then you're somewhere else. It's just if you're traveling somewhere that it does that. Yeah. So it kind of is like almost an immersive element. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so really those those games are stories about the world more mm -hmm. than about your protagonist. Indeed, but you do get a bit of – you did have a bit about your protagonist when you're first coming to town because the driver asked about, asked about you. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Mm -hmm. And of course you get – and when you first meet the characters, it's like – it's a little bit of an introduction. But not the whole uh, very formal process in Japanese. They, I think they uh, turned it to be more – I think for the uh, localization, they made it more colloquial for us. I don't know. That's a good point because I think a big part of just Asian uh, psychology is that they don't want to stand out too much. Mm -hmm. They want to be kind of n noticed too much. Like, for example, my dad's a psychologist. He told me about this a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, one, one recurring theme of me learning to drive with my parents teaching me is that they would like freak the fuck out and be very excitable and stressed me out enormously while driving. Uh -huh. And so one time when that happened sufficiently, I uh, bumped into the car in front of me and um, it was being driven by a, a Chinese uh, man about my age. And it was, so I was, I, I was a kid, I was a teenager and his mother was in the passenger seat and the mother was quite angry, of course, 
but she smiled the entire time and she uh, spoke softly. Her words were firm, but her expression was soft. And so ah. that's all a part of like not making a scene and not looking like you're exceptional to the norms. Whereas we don't really uh, have those qualms in North America. We have no problem acting individualistically and mm -hmm. making a scene and drawing attention to ourselves. Uh, I think there was a quote to that extent. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, really? Uh, here it is. Big stick ideology. Never heard of this. Mm -hmm. Oh, speak softly and carry a big stick? Yeah, it's basically the exercise of intelligent forethought and decisive action to basically, and so to uh, try and avert anything. So you uh, act diplomatically, but you still have the firmness in your voice, hmm. which probably explains how she reacted. Like she uh, spoke softly, but her words were firm. Hmm. Roosevelt described his style of foreign policy as the exercise of intelligent forethought and of decisive action sufficiently far in advance of any likely crisis. So I don't think that's ex – it's similar to what you're saying. I don't yeah. think that's exactly the situation, but mm -hmm. it, it uh, when, when it's being put into practice, it kind of appears the same way. Mm -hmm. Sure. All right. Well, anyway, let's go on to the next one. I don't yeah. want to – we're already, already at an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, if since we're at an hour and a half, do you want to – we're only halfway through our list. Should we continue this next week? Oh, we can continue this next week. Maybe I'll find some more stuff to talk about. Okay. Let's keep going next week. Absolutely. Okay. So All right. Do, 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 do. All right. So uh, take us home, babe. Okay. Thanks for listening to us. And uh, if you'd like to get in contact with us, we can be reached on the web. SquareWaveFM at demodulated.com. Try again. I said Square FM. You said Square Waves FM. SquareFM.demodulated.com. Email is SquareFM at demodulated.com. Or you can badger us on Twitter. We're uh, at Square Waves FM. And please do badger us. We're very, very lucky and happy to have heard from Joe and Robert. And uh, we got another one of our uh, one-minute ditch wonders from <laughs> Trolls, as well as a video from him, which we'll stick into uh, our ditch notes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, thanks a lot for tuning in. And thank you. thanks a lot to uh, Mr. Trolls. I ignited Ditch Playmark for his uh, videos. <laughs> That's right. And uh, keep on digging your own ditch, folks. <laughs> Have a good one. Bye-bye. Beep. Beep. Ditch. Ditch. <laughs> <laughs>